Welcome to episode six of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my gregarious co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. This week's episode is going to be another special one, as we've got another guest, our Insta machinist friend Marvin Gro on the line, calling in from Bavaria, Germany. You may know him as Marv Gro on Instagram. Marvin's taken a rather interesting path to end up working at the bleeding edge of machining technologies and shares some insight into the world of high-end CNC milling. Also, as a heads up, you're going to be hearing microns thrown around a lot as a measurement of accuracy. One micron for reference is 0.00004 inches, or 1 100th the thickness of a sheet of paper. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome to the Digital Fabrication Experiment podcast, Marvin. Hi, nice to be here. And Winston, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. Pleasure to finally meet you, Marvin. Uh, I know we've sort of been just shadowing each other on Instagram for a while, but uh, it's great to finally talk. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, I know a lot about you already because I've been listening to your podcast, so it's nice to meet. So Marvin, I know uh, I know you're in Germany and that you were in Darmstadt when we first started uh, communicating on Instagram, but tell me about where you live now. I'm actually living uh, the most southern part of Germany right now in Bavaria. The city is called Garmisch-Partenkirchen and you can actually from my balcony see the highest peak of Germany, which is awesome because I love climbing. Yeah, it's beautiful. Marv Marvin's been sending me some uh, pictures on a pretty regular basis of just the views out his window from home. And it's, I guess, is that the Alps? What is, what mountain range is that there? It's beautiful. It's the Alps, yes. So you're currently working at Kern, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Kern Mikrotechnik. I, I know uh, some of our listeners overlap with the business of machining. And I know the Johns have talked about Kern as being some of the best machines in the world. But for those that aren't familiar with Kern, can you tell us a little bit about what they make and kind of what makes their machine so special? Yes, um, Kern specializes in five axis machines with, with a very high precision. And they actually advertise that they can run one micron tolerances manless overnight. So the machines aren't that cheap, but you get a very well-built machine with good climate control in it. All the axes are cool. There are high quality spindles in it, most of the time over 40,000 RPM and they are completely automatized. Um, you have a working range of about 300 by 300 millimeters, five axis. So they're pretty large machines making fairly small parts very accurately. Yes, exactly. I think the most sold uh, machine actually weighs seven tons and then you get like 300 millimeters of working space, which is insane. Wow, and I think some of the models have, is it hydrostatic, uh, ball screws and ways, or actually they're linear rails. Exactly, so um, it's the Pyramid Nano, and the Pyramid Nano has hydrostatic ways, so the linear ways, but also hydrostatic drives, which means over the lifetime it shouldn't degrade at all. We have a very old machine running um, in our company, and it shows nowhere at all. It's, it's insane, it has so many hours, I think over 10,000, and you don't see a bit of wear on it. Yeah, that's amazing. I don't see a lot of Instagram uh, Kern video out there, I think, other than uh, uh, the watchmaker friends in Australia. Uh, Nicholas Hacko watch, who have the Nano. Yes, exactly. Um, I think uh, they are also the only video we are reposting on our Facebook page at Kern. <laughs> so not that big on social media yet. 
But that's that's actually a pretty German thing. I mean, you also don't see a lot of Hermler going on on Instagram, and DMG, for example, is only their racing teams. That technology is that basically using oil as the bearing, or is that what what exactly is that? Exactly. So what you what you have is a very flat surface, and or actually two flat surfaces. Normally, one is, for example, a granite base or a cast epoxy base you can also use a metal one and then on the top you have something which has emergency runout um, properties so for example brass or copper anything that won't totally destroy your bearings if the oil film fails and what you do then is you take the oil at a very high pressure so you have a huge hydraulic system and pump it into those axes. So you have oil flowing all the time. It's not like you build up something, but it's running all the time. And then you have a very small film. I think it's in the range of 50 to 100 micron thick, which the whole thing runs on. This is, of course, very dampening, so you don't get a lot of vibrations, but also wear-free because you're just running on the oil and not on the mechanical parts. Interesting. It sounds just like the crankshaft in a in a automotive engine right it kind of i think that's the same principle yes it's good as long as you have your oil pressure <laughs> exactly so how does that work that you said the the bearing film is just it's several microns but you guys hold a tolerance that's at like one micron or less well first off um with every cnc or every well-built cnc machine you of course have measuring devices in the machines which through a closed loop correct the position and i mean the thickness of the oil film doesn't really have anything to do with the precision because it's i mean it should remain if you remain a constant pressure it should remain at a constant thickness so there's probably glass linear scales on those machines right or lasers exactly glass linear scales yes yeah so very accurate not, not like what i'm used to on our little <laughs> little desktop machines whole different world um, and yeah, my understanding is the hydrostatic uh, is really more to prevent wear, right? So that the machine keeps its accuracy over probably decades, right? There's not, no appreciable wear. Yes, um, it's of course a question of wear, but also of precision because um, with normal, um, yeah, for example, bearing ways, you have an effect called stick and slip, which means when you start pushing on it, you have a higher resistance than when it's rolling. And hydrostatic bearings actually eliminate this effect to a very major amount. So I hope someday Kern lets you start expanding their social media footprint. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, you know, if you ever get to show what you're working on there. I, I love the big machines. I love to see, uh, especially a special one like the Kern. You know, it's, it's pretty unique, at least to me. And stateside, I don't see a lot of that here. Probably a little more common over there. What kind of got you started in CNC? What's your... What's your background, both professionally and hobby? I studied materials science in Darmstadt at the Technical University, which was basically a bunch of quantum physics, which didn't help at all with um, machining. And I got started, I think you can fail or you can fault the drone hype a couple of years back, because I started with model building, building drones, building small airplanes. And that got me started into the whole CAD part. Just when I started designing my own parts, um, Fusion 360 came out. So I was like a user of the first hour when it was available in Germany. 
and I started building a 3D printer, just a pre-made kit, a German open source project, SparkCube, I think it was called. And um, after a while I discovered, well, there's this thing I don't like on the 3D printer and that thing I don't like on the 3D printer. And I started designing my own 3D printer, completely in Fusion. And the one I built actually ran better than the one um, I bought. So I was like, okay, what can you improve again? And then my background of material science kicked in and I started designing a hot end. And that hot end is actually pretty special. It had a body made from um, lead-free brass, which is way harder than normal brass at the usual temperatures you have in a 3D printer. Then I uh, let someone manufacture for me um, a heat break from Crate 5 Titanium, which I then coated with a diamond-like carbon because my university research group used to do this. And at the end I had a hot end which I think still think outperforms everything. And it was kind of funny because a lot of people were like, yeah, why do you do this? It's so much effort and so much money into a hot end. And nowadays you look and like E3D and all the big companies, they are offering DLC coded hot ends. They are offering brass heat blocks. And the process of manufacturing the heat break and the block got me interested in CNCing and that was the first start. And then it continued that uh, I was joining our local makerspace in Darmstadt and there one day a guy from Datron came over and he was like, yeah, we are looking for some people who like to tinker. And I was like, oh, this is my proven profession. I like to tinker. Um, not always with good success, but I like to tinker. So um, I applied at Datron just for a student's job at that time and they called me back and I got a job interview and I got to work at Datron. Um, they produce high-speed milling machines, mainly for aluminum. I think they are pretty well known on Instagram. Yeah, I, I remember that's where I actually first ran across your Instagram content was I saw these amazing things being posted on uh, Datron's Instagram page and uh, eventually saw kind of the same stuff on your page and I was like, wait, you're the one doing all that awesome uh, five-axis Neo machining, and, or I think it was four-axis, index four-axis four on the yeah on the Neo. So I want to go back to the 3D printing because I was mining your Instagram page a long time ago, and I went way back and saw, I think, some of the output of that special printer. It looked like you were making ball screws or lead screws that were like functional on that 3D printer. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So um, the end result of the 3D printer was a Delta style. So I think they're called Kozel, um, the most well-known model. And it had at the end, I think over 10,000 hours of build time in it. And I tried basically everything. I tried Egos frictionless uh, linear ways. I tried heaving linear ways with regular bearings. I tried magnetic effectors, everything. And at the end, I had ceramic bearings, which were held in place by a tension, tension device, like a coil. A spring? Yes, a spring. Okay. Um, at the end, it had ceramic bearings um, held together with springs to have a preload on it running in Teflon bearings. And that one was insane. You had like no backlash and very little friction. Um, I did make one mistake in the construction because I decided to fully enclose the 3D printer. And this is my one advice I can give every maker. Never ever build an enclosure that is not square. <laughs> yeah, so it's like an octagon, wouldn't it? Or a triangular? Exactly, I built an octagon and now try to find um, brackets for an octagon. It was insane. 
Well, you could always print them. Yes, exactly. But it was one meter and 20 tall. So that's like four foot. Uh, seriously, it was insane to print all the brackets. I think it ran for two weeks straight to print brackets. Yeah, I think there's a rule of thumb that if you're trying to print the outer bracket for your enclosure and the enclosure is enclosing the printer, the printer is probably not going to have a big enough build area. Right? Yes, exactly. So I had to print it in multiple parts and the parts, of course, had to be as tall as possible. It was good. It was a delta, so I could print up to uh, one and a half foot high. So it's 500 millimeters. But um, yeah, seriously, it took ages. Sometimes it warped. No, never build a non-square enclosure, <laughs> seriously. So did you, those uh, 3D printed ball screws, were you actually using those on the printer? Were those parts for the printer or just experiments? Um, no, they were just experiments. Um, I wanted to see what sort of precision you can reach. Um, they were actually for... Uh, um, for a XY table for a microscope. So um, I was already working at Datron and uh, we wanted to take a closer look at some cutters, but didn't want to shell out a lot of money for a professional microscope. So I was like, yeah, we can design an XY stage. And because they don't produce lathes, only milling machines, of course, the screws had to be produced in a different way. Enter 3D printing. Yeah, that was really cool seeing those. Um, so I'll, for the audience, I'll get, uh... I'll get Marv to send me or work with them on some way to get pictures in the show notes so you guys can see what we're talking about here. It's really pretty cool stuff. Exactly. Um, I also have another recommendation. If you print mainly PLA, don't enclose your 3D printer. I was imagining it enclosing it would stabilize the temperature. So I put in a fan which was temperature controlled by the 3D printer firmware and decided I want a Build, um, build space temperature of around 50 degrees Celsius. Um, that's like very hot in Fahrenheit, no idea. Um, <laughs> 3,000 degrees, I believe. At least 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> um, so um, then I started printing with PLA and it sucked. It was horrible um, because it was just too warm. The filament didn't have enough time to start cooling down. So then I started with aquarium pumps, which were pumping in air from the outside. Um, but this cooled down my uh, hot end too much. So I started insulating the hot end. And you see, this is kind of a vicious circle. In order to improve something, I had to improve major parts of the 3D printer, which took up a massive amount of time. So unless you're printing ABS, just leave your printer open. Yeah, I, I, I do mostly, actually, almost exclusively PLA here, except for some of the flexible filaments. I have not done ABS, so I didn't even install the, the heated bed. Um, PLA seems to just like ambient temperature for me. Um, bigger parts, I still will occasionally get some warping. Um, if I turn my ceiling fan off, that goes away. <laughs> it's very sensitive, right, to cooling just at the right rate. But it's a, it's a pretty big machine. It was, what, uh, like a meter tall? Yes, four foot tall, so a meter and 20, and it weighed about 70 kilograms, so 140 pounds. Wow, yeah, it, it was big. It was it, it was a beast. Hauling that one around was no fun at all. Winston and I haven't really talked much about 3D printers on DFX yet. Uh, Probably because I don't have a 3D printer. Yeah, you, you were talking about Delta printers. I'm actually still considering getting a, that design to replace my current machine, you know, something that could build a little bit bigger. So I'm finding them awfully useful in a, a workshop that's kind of focused on milling. 
Um, 3D printer is awfully handy thing to have for fixtures and all kinds of little things. I, I just, I never run out of things, functional things to build with it, but I don't really use it as my primary, or I never really target that for a part. Uh, it's usually doing some secondary role in something I'm machining, but I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of 3D printing in addition to milling. Uh, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about your current work at Kern. So you're still in kind of an academic uh, industrial program, is that correct? Okay, so I'm finishing my academic uh, master's degree. And for this, I need to write a master thesis, which Kern gladly agreed to let me do there. I'm very happy and very thankful for that. So I know that you're doing is work on surface finish, right? Trying to find the limits of uh, surface finish that's, a, that's achievable on a CNC milling machine. Exactly. Um, so Kern has, uh, when a customer comes with a project, they of course have very tight tolerances. So most of the time the customer is asking for like one or two micron tolerances or even less than that. And of course, if you have a uh, tolerance that's small, your surface also needs to be very good. Um, nowadays, dye and mold is a huge industry. So lots of part get injection molded. I think we all have seen John Saunders um, tries to get a working mold on Instagram, right. which was fun to follow along. And a big problem at the moment uh, financially is you produce a mold on a milling machine and then often for the desired surface finish, someone has to polish this mold. And that is done by hand. And the result depends a lot on the experience of the person doing it. And it's kind of not possible to automate this. So, for example, doing an online shop where you can just upload a step file and a finished form drops out and produces your parts by injection molding, that's not really a reality today. At least I don't know anyone doing this. And Kern has been researching, and my master thesis continues in this one to get nanometric um, surface finishes. So you have this uh, surface roughness. Um, the most common one is the RA value, which is like the arithmetic surface roughness. It basically co collects a profile. Most of the time it's done by running a diamond needle across a part. And at the end, you just run a mathematic formula over that profile and you get a number. And a very good surface finish in CNC machining, I believe is like one micron, so one micrometer. Um, if you are from America, I have no idea what it is, but you can probably look it up. Um, like, uh, the hair of a human is 50 micron thick. So for a reference scale and the surfaces that we are producing are in stainless steel. And we are actually producing a surface roughness of around 0 0.015 microns. So that's 15 nanometers surface roughness, which is insane. Where does that fall into, you know, there's kind of this kind of scale of surface finishes is what you typically get from machining. And then there's grinding, I think, uh, lapping, polishing, burnishing, you know, all finer it's and finer. below all of these. So like wow. at the very end of the scale of polishing, you get like 0 0.05 maybe. And it's like way below that one. That's amazing. And that's right off the machine. That's right off the machine. Have you achieved this yet or that's that's your goal? Right? No, we, we have achieved this and we are actually aiming for single digit nanometer, but no idea whether it's possible. I'm going to assume it's a combination of the right machine, the right tooling and the right uh, approach, right? 
Exactly. So it's a huge technical know-how process and it takes a lot of overview. You also get a lot of material faults. So if you have micro hardness in the material, you might get vibration induced, which ruins your surface. So for me as a material scientist and a CNC enthusiast, this is the perfect subject. I get to play with cool machines. I get to research something in depth. A lot of the time I'm actually working on a scanning electron microscope because the effects are so small that you don't see them in an optical microscope. That's insane. So you're saying that uh, material variations, end mill variations can all have a huge effect on the surface finish. But if, um, let's say you're trying to scale up this process, you can't necessarily say like, oh, you need to buy... Um, material stock or steel from like a certain vendor um, how would you possibly standardize this process so that um, it's repeatable uh, for people on different continents who might be using your machines trying to achieve this surface finish i think this is um, a question of what you want to achieve the theoretical limit is about five nanometers so you can't go below that one that's like a theoretical limit in a perfect single crystalline material so going for 10 or 15 nanometer surface roughness, you're already on the, let's say, hardcore end of machining. So I think you actually can ask the customer if he comes to you and he's like, yeah, I want to produce nanometric surface finish. You can tell them, okay, go to that and that producer and order the material. Because the material is already quite expensive. I mean, you don't do this in normal mold steel. You take a special hardened stainless steel for that one. So I think you can actually ask the customer to just order it in Europe and ship it worldwide. Shouldn't make a huge impact on the cost if you compare it to what one hour on the machine costs or the specialized tooling. Yeah, or hand polishing, right? All the hand work. Or hand polishing, yes. And, and with the opportunity to ruin the part at the very end after all the, or the expense has been spent on it. Put you, Winston, you put your finger on a very sore subject for me because... I mean, we can, of course, tell the customer to yeah go there and there and buy material there, but there's actually no one producing material uh, in a constant quality. So you just get what you want because the amounts you need for these micromolds, they are very small. So what I would love would be a steel producer who says, yeah, we are going to make it exactly that way and exactly that way all the time with tight tolerances. But for example, hardening. Hardening is done um, with a like plus minus two tolerance HRC hardness. So you have huge variance already there. Are you machining this metal material in a hard state to get this final uh, surface finish, surface roughness? Exactly. Um, we are hardening um, the stainless steel to 56 HRC. So it's pretty tough material. Pre-machining? Uh, yes, pre-machining, yes. From what I've seen is um, like the hard materials, even though they're difficult to work, you, you tend to get a better surface finish, like out of tool steel, if you have the right tooling and everything than in the annealed state. I could be way off on that. No idea about that one. Um, <laughs> I think milling hardened material is always a larger wear on the tool. Um, but for example, I think uh, aluminum 7075, so like that well-known aircraft crate aluminum mills so awesome, even though it's way harder than, for example, a cheap crown aluminum. I was kind of curious in Germany, is is there a big, what I would call maker culture or kind of DIY culture there, um, especially when it comes to machining? Is that common in Germany? Or, or based on what I see on Instagram, I'm thinking there's a lot of, uh, a lot of machinists 
out there. I don't, I don't know if hobby's the right word because it looks professional to me, <laughs> but I think I suspect that's just regular hobby level uh, stuff over there. I'm kind of curious, what's the maker culture like in Germany? <laughs> okay, um, well, I think you're talking, for example, about Stefan Goetheswinter. Yes, um, exactly. He's insanely good. Um, I think he actually now lives pretty close to where I moved, so I have to hit him up and see whether he lets me visit one day. Would love to. No, um, I think the thing is, in Germany, um, we are, I mean, worldwide renowned for engineering, and because of this, a lot of young people take up jobs in manufacturing. Um, before we started recording this podcast, I looked up a little bit of numbers to give a background. Um, in Germany, a lot of people are doing not uh, academic studies, but an apprenticeship, which is state-controlled. So you have like certain duration, certain exams. Normally, it takes three years. And every year, around half a million young people um, take up an apprenticeship. And about 25% of those go into, for example, mechanical work. So you have a huge base of people who by profession are working with metal in Germany. And of course, these people in their free time spend a lot of time tinkering. So I'd say, yes, maker culture is a very big thing in Germany. Also, for example, in France, where I lived for a year. And you have lots of um, organized maker spaces. And I think this is something I wanted to ask you guys too. In America, there are maker spaces, right? Yes, and they range from kind of just a group of enthusiasts that got something together and, and maybe found some sponsors uh, all the way up to some corporate, you know, really nice corporate sponsored, uh, what I would call kind of almost an industrial maker space, mostly on the East and West coast. Yeah. Um, no, I was just wondering, are they mostly like enthusiast groups or are they done like a corporate business? So you join for a certain amount of money, like a larger amount and then get professional quality equipment. Yeah. Winston, I don't know if, what you have over there, but I, I've definitely seen both. Um, I know like in San Antonio, our makerspace started with a uh, corporate sponsorship. Uh, there was a, a philanthropic organization here that was tied to Rackspace, one of the big uh, dot-com companies. And they invested in uh, funding makerspace and they're basically working on bringing high-tech jobs to San Antonio. I've actually never been to that particular makerspace, but I heard it's supposed to be pretty nice. But, you know, some of the stuff I've seen on the West Coast, especially, they, they look like they're usually sponsored. I think Haas has well-stocked some makerspaces around the country and some, probably some of the other um, machine tool builders have also. Yeah, there's definitely some corporate-sponsored ones, but you also have um, entities like uh, Tech Shop before they went bankrupt, which um, it's just a company that brought um, all the, the tools and... Uh, technical knowledge to a certain shop space and set it up and franchised it and like they had them on the east coast a lot on the west coast they went bankrupt but uh, there are still other companies that are sort of similar i know in uh, new york city i had a friend who is like looking to do woodworking and they have uh, wood shops they're pretty well equipped for a membership fee you can go use their tools and i also have friends who uh, they're part of a makerspace that's more like just a club they meet on like tuesdays or something they have like a little warehouse that they rent out uh, a certain board of directors and if one of them's there you can use the shop uh, something like that so it, it spans the full gamut from uh, large and small okay i think in germany it's mostly those non-profit club type of makerspaces so for example in darmstadt where i helped found a makerspace we started out with 60 people we were only able to rent a small shop which was 60 square meters big 
and we had 3D printers there, milling machines, a lathe, but everything was kind of like used equipment someone had lying around at home. So for example, I sponsored a 3D printer and the Beamer for the space, a friend of mine sponsored the laser cutter, so we could start off, and that's a lot of maker culture in Germany, I think, just a bunch of guys meeting in a garage, starting out to build something. Interesting. I know there's um, an industrial makerspace in Berlin. I think it's called Motion Lab. Uh, so if you ever get over there and want to play around with something like the Pocket NC, which they have there, um, that's supposed to be a pretty good one to check out. I'm not sure if it's, it says industrial makerspace. So I don't know if that's like open to enthusiasts or if it's more of a, you know, company is, companies are the audience for that. But I just recently stumbled across that. I thought it was kind of interesting that there was... Uh, pocket and C's five axis machines starting to show up outside of the US. I haven't been to Berlin in quite some time and now going from the south of the Roman to the north is quite far. But if I make it, I will check it out because it's a pity you, I mean, I'm pretty impressed by what you two are doing on the pocket and C and I don't know a single person in Europe owning a pocket and C. I get the impression it's more common um, for people doing kind of hobby level CNC stuff at home over there to build their own machines, or is that just you? No, I think a lot of people are building their own machines or just adopting uh, cheap Chinese routers to fit their needs. I think the used machine market over there, you guys have some really good uh, stuff available in the secondhand market. Yeah, even manual machines, right, that are popular to convert to CNC. I mean, there is a lot of that going on here. Um, bigger machines than like what I run here, but that's also so pretty popular. I see a lot more with lathes than with milling machines in the US, uh, you know, kind of rescuing an old lathe and maybe putting a DRO or even fully CNC converting it and turning out pretty good parts with it. Yeah, I think the availability of machines in Germany is also a little bit better because the country is just so much smaller than the US. I mean, going from the most southern point to the most northern point is not even, uh, I think, 700 miles. So it's pretty close together. If I look up on the um, local listings, can you call it local listings? Yeah. Okay. If you go on the local Craigslist in Germany, I think in a 100 uh, kilometer range around my home place, I can directly buy 500 different milling machines at a good price. They will be heavy, they will be like most likely one ton or more because they are old, but they are in good condition most of the time. So it's pretty easy to get used machinery in Europe. You don't need to drive as far as I, it is my understanding for the US. Yeah, I think you guys have like Schaublin and, and Deckel just showing up all over the place over there. Those are those are like real big treats when they go for sale here. Yes, exactly. Deckel machines are pretty common here, but they are also pretty uh, rough priced because uh, they are very popular on the internet and everybody of course wants a decal. Thanks Stefan. Exactly. <laughs> yeah so I, I've never tackled DIY machine building here but it's still something I, I might try someday and you'll be the first one I'll call for advice. Marvin's built uh, since I've known him he put together a really nice uh, gantry type CNC probably the most rigid DIY machine I've ever seen and you've got you have some other things I think eventually that might see the light of day and of course that amazing printer yes um, well going for DIY is something I would advise every machinist to at least once try out because you learn a lot about it it's like driving a car or actually taking apart your car changing the tires you learn a lot about it and it's the same with building your own CNC machines 
The only stopping point I see is if you just want to produce parts and you want to save money, then don't do it because uh, with all DIY projects I started, I set out with a budget. I was like, okay, I'm gonna spend the amount X and at the end it tripled. It always triples or even is tenfold of what I started with because you start out planning for the material, for the guideways, and then you forget the screws, forgot the sensors, forgot the control, or you decide, oh, I want the better control, I want the better spindle. So if you just want to produce parts, make art, make small parts, make it as a hobby, maybe don't do your own machine. But if you want to learn about it, do it. Yeah, it sounds like my, my Shapeoko enclosure. I think I blew my budget like <laughs> three times bigger. <laughs> just uh, fasteners and brackets and all that kind of stuff you never remember to add in. I can't imagine the, you know an actual machine. Um, and staying in budget on that. Uh, my friends and I, we all have a joke in the engineering space that the engineering safety factor should always be three, and that's in reference to both time and money. <laughs> that's a good one. little uh, trivia here. You're actually our second guest, and the only guests we've had on the show are material scientists. <laughs> I don't know how long that trend will continue, but just a little interesting fact. I was actually smiling when I was listening to your last episode and was like, oh, material scientist, nice. Yeah, Danielle's uh, really amazing. I think her specialty was uh, advanced battery as far as material science, because she's doing something different now. But I think that's academically, that's uh, the space she was working in initially. Because I read an article that she was, she had the opportunity to be an early employee at Tesla. Of course, she went a different way and did the uh, other mill, which I'm very happy beneficiary of, of her decision there. I want to talk a little bit specifically about some of the stuff I've learned from you and um, a couple other folks at Datron that have has turned out to be really good information and that I'm starting to share um, with other makers and I'm starting to see some success there. So Winston and I both run really small machines. Um, Winston does more work with Shapeoka, which I'm still uh, just kind of getting started with. Don't have much experience with that particular combination of spindle power and and the rigidity of the of the uh, extrusion-based machine. But on my smaller machines here, the other mill, the Pocket and C, and the Nomad, I've been having really good luck with the uh, single flute cutters in aluminum and brass, which you know, I never would have guessed. I, I've always known those to be perfect for plastic um, until I kind of ran into you and, and the US Datron team. I never would have thought to try those in, in metal. Um, and then even when it was suggested to me, you know, and I saw how it worked on something like the Neo with the 60K RPM spindle. I was still thinking, okay, well, that makes sense. It works there. But uh, it was a big surprise to me to find out how well these small single flute cutters work on metal. Um, it's actually kind of transformed what I can do with my machines. I was just kind of wondering if you had any thoughts about why those, why that particular cutter geometry works so well on low power spindles like on, on the Pocket NC and the, uh, the other mill. Any particular insight you might have with your, your background in machining? Yeah, this is going to get a bit, little bit technical now. Perfect. Datron, um, where I worked, and I worked also in tool development there, um, specializes in single flute cutters because they don't have a lot of spindle power. I mean, most of the spindles are like 1,000, 2,000, maybe 4,000 watts. And this is a similar situation with your machines. You have very little uh, spindle power. And if you look at cutting tools, what the manufacturers write, they often don't defy a certain feed rate, but they just tell you, yeah, you should have a feed per tooth that is like 0.1 millimeters or something like this. 
And the reason behind this is you want to cut a chip. You don't want to just wrap along the machine, uh, the material. You don't want to wrap around along the material. It's not grinding, but it's milling, chip production. And if you have a very small spindle, you don't have a lot of power. And not gonna get into too much detail here, but basically every chip you produce, of course, takes a certain amount of power wattage. And if you have multiple fluids, your feed rate needs to be really low because you are cutting all the time. So your chip thickness decreases because you are running slower. And that's actually something I think which helps on your small machines with the single flute cutters. You have only one flute cutting, so you can have a decent feed rate, a decent chip thickness, but your spindle doesn't slow down too much. One thing I really found with the single flutes is it seems to be a lot more forgiving, uh, or at least it has a broader range of speeds and feeds that work compared to the multi-flute cutters. Um, especially on aluminum, I would often get into trouble even with the coated three flutes with, uh, if I had the speed and feed dialed in just right, everything went pretty well. Um, but any kind of, uh, variation either in the material, or, um, maybe I changed depth of cut a little bit to try to go a little faster. I would end up with chip welding on my cutters. I think this is another big advantage of the single flute cutters because you have a single flute, you of course have a huge space for chip evacuation, which you don't have if you have a four flute or a six flute cutter. So for soft materials like plastic, where the chip volume is really big, of course single flute cutters make sense. But for your small machines, and as a hobbyist, you of course don't have flood coolant at home because it's dirty, it stinks, and the small desktop machines are not used to running it. So you don't have a good cooling system, which of course the single flute profits from more than a three flute because you just get the hot chips faster away from the um, chip zone, chip forming zone. Yeah, I think that's actually the, the biggest benefit I'm seeing is the chip evacuation on the single flutes. Um, I've noticed it a lot more on some of the, when I'm like boring a hole to prepare a fixture or something, I'm doing kind of half inch aluminum plate and that, that's usually where I would run into problems with the multi-flute cutters, uh, the deeper pockets. And I have yet to have any kind of problems with the single flute. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to make sure there was some science or rationale behind uh, what I'm seeing. Because I, I do recommend them a lot. Now, a lot of folks ask me, I'll have a, maybe a new follower that just got a Nomad and starts asking me about tooling up. And if they're working in aluminum or plastic, I'll usually say, you know, this probably isn't what you've heard before. but give some of these smaller single flutes a try, give the recommendation based on my experience with them. And I often share the, the speeds and feeds that worked for me, but never really felt comfortable. I didn't really have a, you know, it wasn't common wisdom to me to use that tool for that type of uh, milling. So it's nice to know there's some, you know, what the rationale behind it is and kind of why it's working so well. So thank you for sharing that. I think another big advantage of the single flute cutters, um, I mean, normally it's a disadvantage. The single flute cutter by design is not balanced. Of course, Datron offers balanced tools, but even if you take a different manufacturer where the single flutes are not balanced. On a normal milling machine, if you have a huge tool, a huge single flute cutter, this will vibrate. But on your small machines, you use very small tooling, so they don't vibrate a lot. But where they actually shine is the run out of the spindle. Because, I mean, I don't want to bash small machines. I love the Pocket NC. But of course, the spindle run out is not as good as on a professional level machine. 
and or the spindle stiffness and with a two flute or three flute cutter what actually happens is like one flute is maybe cutting a little bit further to the right and then the next flute because of deflection or run out is cutting a little bit less in so first off you get different chip load on the different flutes which is not good for the lifetime of the tool but also your surface is not ideal this is especially true if you're like for example doing a parallel operation with a ball end mill and with a single flute ball and mill, you actually have a perfect surface no matter the spindle runout, because at every rotation it's at the same place. That's good to know. I um, I check none of my machines have hydrostatic ways, so I think you're right about them not being <laughs> being like the big machines. <laughs> it does bring up uh, sort of an interesting point. Um, since the Shapeoko is a less rigid machine, I haven't had a lot of experience with the single flutes. Um, that uh, the sort of the harmonics of using a single flute is something I'd definitely be interested in seeing. Because um, I've used like variable helix cutters before in aluminum, and with the rigidity of my machine, I still get like a, a, a fair amount of chatter, unless I really step down or well, step up and take a shallow depth of cut. Um, so sort of understanding the, the physics of how a single flute works would kind of be interesting to me. Have you looked into sort of the, the cutting forces, um, the, the harmonics of single flutes um, in the work that you do? Um, looked into it, decided it's not my type of math, and closed the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's super technical, and the main problem is all the analytical um, models for modeling milling are super complicated and still are super simplified because there are so many processes happening at the same time. You get tool deflection, you get spindle deflection in the bearings, you get spindle preload through spindle warming. So it's a huge amount of effects. It's really hard to model this. Um, if anyone is really good in this and knows a solution, hit me up on Instagram. I would love to know. Yeah, I plan on uh, extending my single flute experimentation into the shape Oko. Uh, I have some larger, you know, six millimeter, five millimeter cutters that I'm looking forward to running in aluminum there. And we'll see, see how well that works. Uh, Cause I think on that machine, you know, chip evacuation is even more critical. Chip evacuation is, is one thing, but the, the run out invariance um, is also pretty huge, I think. So definitely curious to see how that works out for you. What I found out, just an empirical view, um, with three flute cutters, you of course get certain harmonics and sometimes they are bad, sometimes they are better. This is what tuning in your spindle means. With single flutes, I found that sometimes you hit a spot which is really an awesome sweet spot and sometimes you have a near catastrophic failure. So <laughs> I've seen machines hobbing around from a single flute cutter, a non-balanced one running too fast. So you can go big, but you can also go home with these tools. Wow. Well, I'm definitely a, a fan of the of the single flutes on the little machines. Um, anything else you want to share with our audience or any kind of closing thoughts for us, Marvin? Oh, you're surprising me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd say keep up machining, keep up learning. And uh, if you have them along, single flute cutters, don't dismiss them. I like them, and as we've seen, Ed likes them too, so just give it a try. I'm going to go ahead and share your um, your Instagram page on the show notes for anyone that's looking to see Marv's work, and uh, actually, I'll go ahead and put the, the one in there for Datron too, because I think a lot of your stuff's also 
shows up on their page. It's older stuff, but uh, it's really, really amazing stuff. Amazing work. And hopefully someday you'll see some current work. I'm looking forward to that day if it ever, ha if it ever happens. I hope so too. Um, at the moment, I'm not at the liberty of showing, but if I'm able to share something, it will appear on Instagram for sure. Perfect. How about you, Winston? Any uh, last questions? Um, so I know you've got a YouTube channel. Are you planning on doing anything with that? Uh, well, my YouTube channel, probably for your audience, not that interesting. I mostly do fusion tutorials in German because there's very little fusion tutorials in German and a lot of people find it hard to follow in English. So it's probably not the most interesting for your audience. Yeah, we'll still throw a shout out in the show notes anyway. I'm sure someone out there speaks German also. Yeah, we, we found out recently we have a very international uh, listener base. So <laughs> um, actually, I think Germany is probably number six or five on our, our country stats. So yeah, we have quite a few listeners in Germany. All right. Well, I think that's it. Um, I really appreciate you giving us some time. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Enjoy talking to you, Marvin, and uh, really happy to have you on DFX. Yeah. Pleasure to have you. Thank you. Wow. That was really great having Marvin on. Or He reached out to me, I think it was last year, probably just a few months after I got on Instagram. And uh, he's been a wealth of tips and machining advice. I have a lot of uh, appreciation for everything he's told me. Yeah, he, he's he's really an excellent resource on machines, big and small, um, especially for cutting parameters and stuff like that. So a lot of what you see on my Instagram page that I've shared probably started as advice from Marvin. Speaking of shop, I haven't had much going on this week. I've uh, been doing some remodeling or having some remodeling done in the, in the workshop, but that's finally done. I'll be moving uh, all the gear back in here and hope to be machining later this week. How about you? Anything going on in the shop for you? Uh, really just finishing up a 7075 aluminum project, which if you've been following me on Instagram, shouldn't be too much of a surprise, but hopefully that should drop within a couple days of this episode going live. Um, other than that, trying to gear up for the next project, which I think will be a pocket NC project. Um, I want to make that a tool setter that we've been talking about for uh, all the tool holders. Um, so I I just glued together the blocks of wood that'll form the body of that project. So we'll see where that goes. I'll let you know more uh, next week. That's good to know. That's, you're giving me incentive to go make the one I designed. Maybe we'll have a little... Uh, Ooh, a shoot-off. Metal man versus wood man. It'd be interesting. Um, any uh, interesting travel? Funny you should mention that. So uh, I will be at IMTS uh, the Thursday, Friday. So September 13th, 14th. Um, so if anyone's going to be in the area, shoot me a message on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, would love to meet up and uh, I'll be loaded to the gills with DFX stickers. So uh, feel free to drop by and ask for one. I'll be happy to hand them out. Well, thank you for representing the podcast as I'm not going to make it to IMTS this year. I hope to be there in 2020, though. I hope you have a good time. Yeah, thanks. Well, I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up now. Winston, have a safe trip to IMTS and I uh, hope to talk to you when you get back. Thanks very much. Have a good night. Good night.